Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about all of the various new versions of on-screen Star Trek. This week we're looking at episode five of Lower Decks entitled Cupid's Errant Arrow. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Michael Merrick and you might call me the podcast media guy. And I'm the philosophy guy. My name is Rodney Cup in this podcast. And as the faculty of the Academy, we deconstruct every new episode of every Star Trek series. We're beginning with Lower Decks and later on we'll do Discovery. We compare them to the rest of the overall Star Trek body of work and we try to find the meaning in their themes and evaluate their overall quality. Our website is thestartrekacademy.blogspot.com and if you go there, you can find links to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we're also available on lots of podcast sites, and you can find those linked from the, uh, the website uh, also. So as always, in case there are some people listening who haven't actually seen this week's episode yet, uh, we begin with a summary of the episode, which Rodney has prepared for you this week. All right, and here we go. So in this episode, the Cerritos arrives at the planet Mixtus Three. One of the moons orbiting the planet is expected to fall into it and kill everyone. So the Cerritos is there to help implode the unstable moon. And alongside is the Vancouver, a parliament class ship that specializes in complex, large scale engineering projects. Unfortunately, the project might have to be canceled because certain inhabitants of the system are opposed to imploding the moon for various reasons. For example, one of them claims that, the, that moons can't plummet, and the government is just telling them that to control them. Boimler is excited about all this because it's going to allow him to reconnect with his new girlfriend, Lieutenant Barbara Brinson, a member of the Vancouver's crew. Now, meanwhile, Rutherford and Tendi contrast the aging Cerritos with the Vancouver, which has the latest in Starship technology, as well as the T-88, the newest handheld diagnostic tool. They board the Vancouver to check out its awesome thermal mesh. Boimler and Mariner are also there to meet Brinson. Mariner can't believe that she's dating Boimler when, he, when she sees her. So she tells the computer to end program just to confirm that she's real, and she is. Elsewhere on the Vancouver, Captain Freeman is negotiating with the people of Mixtus, trying to find a way to win their support for the implosion of the unstable moon. And she succeeds mostly. One man claims that his civilization of two on Mixtus II will perish if they implode the moon. Captain Freeman, unimpressed by the fact that this man is wealthy, orders the implosion of the moon, even though the man just had his floors redone. Mariner thinks that Brinson is out of his league and suspects that Brinson is an alien with ulterior motives. Boimler, on the other hand, is worrying that Brinson and her ex-boyfriend Jet who serves aboard the Cerritos might have lingering feelings for each other. So Boimler and Mariner find Brinson and Jet at a meeting to recalibrate the containment field for the implosion. We won't go into why. Boimler tries to keep Jet away from Brinson, whereas Mariner is trying to find out what the heck Brinson is, but they're asked to leave. So later on, Boimler tells Mariner that Brinson is a great human lady and that she needs to accept people for who they are. Then he says that he's going to change everything about himself to trick Brinson into thinking he's something he's not. Even though this effort to impress Brinson goes nowhere, they make up 
and she invites him to accompany her to one of the orbital platforms that will help contain the implosion since they have to be manually activated. We won't go into why here. Mariner, though, finds an exo exoskeletal husk, which convinces her that Brinson is a parasite. Mariner does a spacewalk to get to the orbital platform, where she finds a completely naked Boimler who manages to get knocked unconscious. And Brinson shows up and they engage in a lengthy melee. Brinson doesn't believe that Boimler could be friends with a badass space adventurer, so she suspects that Mariner is a parasite. But they unexpectedly bond when they start telling each other stories about their experiences with Boimler. Then they discover that Boimler has a parasite that reproduces by making its host irresistible to potential mates. And after that parasite is removed, unfortunately, Brinson breaks up with Boimler. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Commander Docent of the Vancouver gives Tendi and Rutherford T-88s to run diagnostics on the simulation mainframe. He says the first one to get to finish gets to keep their T-88. But Tendi and Rutherford finish their work at the same time, so Docent tells them that they'll both get to keep their T-88s, but they're surprised to learn that they are being transferred to the Vancouver. So Tendi and Rutherford think it over and they decide that they want to remain on the Cerritos. But Docent tells them that he's going to transfer transfer them anyway. Rutherford and Tendi steal the pad with a transfer order on it. After Docent stuns Rutherford with his phaser twice, they discover that Docent is requesting a transfer to the Cerritos because the Vancouver is just too stressful and too epic. Filled with remorse though, he deletes the order and gives them T-88s in exchange for their silence. While back on the Cerritos, Rutherford and Tendi reveal to each other that they both stole a bunch of T-88s for everyone on the Cerritos to use, and that's why they're friends. And that's the episode. Okay, and thank you for that, uh, that summary. So first, as we go through our podcast, we look at kind of the individual elements and, and what they are, and then try to kind of see how they fit together. And we have, as always, we have lots of just individual sometimes isolated things, sometimes connected, we want to talk about. There was no cold open this week. A cold open is a scene that begins before the credits. And the, the episodes so far this season have had cold opens that really did not relate to the rest of the story of the episode. I, I think maybe there was so much happening, and there was a lot in this episode, that maybe they just didn't have that extra couple of minutes to waste on something that was not related. There were three kind of storylines, three tracks in this episode. One was the moon subplot. One was the Barbara Brinson subplot. And, uh, and then the, the Tendi Rutherford subplot. And you know, Rodney, this whole episode just moved at breakneck speed. If we could slow it down and play it at about 80%, I think, I think the voices would be more normal. Uh, in some words, sometimes I couldn't even figure out what they were saying. They were talking so fast. I suspect that, that the production does record the voices of the voice talent at more normal speed and speed, speed them up. Um, I just I, I do have a, watch with subtitles on. I will tell you. So um, I can follow along. The the first time I watch with subtitles, later it depends on what device I'm watching on as to whether I'm going to see subtitles or not. But yeah, yeah, that that's true. Uh, we have a whole bunch of just little things. 
um, uh, things that we noticed. Uh, the, one of the very first scenes, I saw some symbolism. There's a scene out in space with both the Vancouver and the Cerritos. And the Vancouver, as we're seeing it, moves in front and just like covers up the Cerritos, uh, which sort of, to me, signals they're the better ship. They're the, they're the fancy one. And, and, Good uh, point. Um, you know, just a little very subtle symbolism there. I noticed that both captains have a, a gray stripe going like from the middle of their foreheads back. And, uh, you know, one, it's, it's, it's not a style we usually see, but, you know, one captain, one female captain with that is one thing, but, but two on different ships. I, I, don't, I don't understand what symbolism there, there might be there uh, in that, but both captains had it. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, we were exposed to a, and I'm going to use this word if you don't mind, a mixtusian conspiracy theory. In this, what episode. do you mean by that? Oh, uh, a person from Mixtus is a mixtusian, oh. um, and uh, yeah, this one person says that that this uh, whole story about the moon falling into the planet is just a story the government made up to control them. I'll say more about that later, uh, but I couldn't help but notice that and its relevance to the present day. Um, here's a little is Easter egg for you all. Boimler tells Mariner that Brinson is as real as a hopped up cue on Captain Picard Day. And I'm not, I'm not sure what exactly that means. Uh, cue always seems kind of hopped up. Well, yeah, I mean, but there was a Next Generation episode, the, the original Captain Picard Day episode, and I think that yeah. was a Q episode, wasn't it? So, Pardon? Um, I believe that was a Q episode, wasn't it? I don't remember. I guess I should have looked that up. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, um, there were other references to past episodes, uh, you know, all of the references to Holodeck, Holodeck episodes, uh, or holodeck characters. Jordy, for example, fell in love on the holodeck once, and uh, other characters at least had some kind of relationship with with uh, with their holodeck characters. Apparently, Boimler's been doing that also, but he doesn't do that anymore. He says, uh, "Yeah, if he is to be trusted." Um, speaking of Jordy, I'm sure everybody probably noticed that um, one of the gifts Boimler has brought to the Vancouver for his special lady friend is a teddy bear that looks an awful lot like Jordy LaForge. Interesting. I, I saw somebody online comment that um, CBS is, are fools if they don't license that. They could, although in the Star Trek timeline, by the time Lower Decks happens, I think Jordy has his visor replaced with implant eyes, if I remember right. So, yeah. Right. Um, I looked at the the shuttles on the Vancouver. Remember, we had identified that that on the Cerritos, the shuttles are named after national parks in California. Well, on the Vancouver, you had the Marpole, the Fairview, and the Kitsilano, I think is how it's pronounced. Those are all communities, or at least neighborhoods, in the Vancouver area. So they're 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 being consistent there. I didn't think to look those up or to uh, look at the shuttlecraft. I think a lot of details just went by me this week. Um, I did notice that Mariner uh, said that Jet is the second coolest person on the Cerritos. I think it's pretty clear that, that Mariner said second because she thinks she is the first coolest yeah. person. And that's a good way of showing us Mariner's vanity. She's pretty vain. 
Um, Boimler is pretty impressed with Jet. Uh, he says that Jet is a Kirk Sunday with Trip Tucker sprinkles. And that, that sounds pretty good to me. Another one of these, these production decisions that I don't, I don't quite get whether it's a coincidence or not, but most of the characters have, are drawn to have round eyes, at least unless they're blinking or, or squinting or something like that. But Barbara had, her eyes were consistently oval. Uh, and I, I just, I don't get if there's a hidden meaning there. One of Rutherford's one, his natural eye is usually shown as being, as being oval, but pretty much all of the other characters are, are quite, are drawn to be quite round. Um, well, you know, that, it just occurred to me that I, I just recalled the Anabaj, I hope I'm getting that right, from the episode with the uh, Klingon, um, had oval eyes, I believe. Um, mm. And maybe... Uh, they they just look sexier and round could, eyes. Could be, or maybe they were trying to subtly delude us into thinking she's something different. I, I mean, I, I I don't know. I don't know. I also looked at the meaning of names. You have Barbara Brinson. You have Brad Boimler. Not all of them in Lower Decks have the, the same, you know, first and last initials. But that reminds me of of Marvel. Uh, where many, not all, but many of their heroes uh, have have that alliteration: Reed Richards, Sue Storm, Peter Parker, Bruce Banner, Matt Murdock. Of course, then you have Ron Docent, and I wonder what the symbolism there is. A docent, essentially a museum tour guide, um, or, or 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 a lecture, kind of a lecturer, impromptu lecturer, or something like that. And and it's it, an odd it, choice of surname, isn't it? It is, but but you know, so I, I don't know if there was intended symbolism there. A lot of writers do build symbolism into the names of their characters. I think the only thing I could think of is that um, you know, Tendy and Rutherford show up on the Vancouver and they're they're just awestruck. And Dosen introduces them to these T eighty eights. So I, maybe they're thinking of thinking of him as a, as a kind of a docent acting in, in the role of a docent for Tendy and Rutherford on the yeah. Vancouver. That's the only thing I can think Could of. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Mariner says that uh, Brinson <laughs> might be a Romulan spy or a salt succubus, which I, I think is a reference to the man trap. That's gotta be, or a, an Android or a changeling. Those could be a number of things. Or, and I love this, one of those sexy people in rompers that murders you just for going on the grass. That seems like a reference to uh, the Next Generation episode, Justice. Yes, where they, visit, where they visit, the, it, it's often referred to as the planet of blonde joggers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in, uh, in their office or shop, Mariner had what on a, on a law enforcement show would be called a murder board. Is that what they call uh, them? Well, yeah, I think, you know, the, 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 the whiteboards with photos and things taped up there. And there is a Suleiman there. The salt vampire is there. Mm. A Cardassian, a Romulan, a Klingon. There were what appear to be those transporter twins. Uh, I think th th there were two binars. I'm pretty sure there were binars. And, of course, binars being binary. They always come in twos. There was a whale, and there was what looked to me like the COVID-19 virus up there. I, I missed that. What is the whale supposed? Is that like a, a uh, reference? I, well, I mean, or, or it could be, 
you know, Star Trek for the voyage home, oh, or right. I don't know why it would be up there as a suspicion of, of a changeling or something. I, I, I don't know about that. Uh, I also noticed the Quito um, is at least more or less the same class of ship as Captain Beverly Picard had in the, in the alternate timeline in the finale of Star Trek The Next Generation, All Good Things. And it is seen docked at Deep Space Nine. Right, you know, and I missed that the first time through. I mean, it's right there on the screen, and I, and I saw the ship. And I thought, gee, that looks familiar. But I didn't even see Deep Space Nine. And, you know, at first when you were mentioning the pace of the show, you know, I was thinking, yeah, well, you know, I, I guess I can handle it. But maybe I can't because I didn't even see Deep Space Nine the first time. Is I didn't see that the first time either. I, um, I was going to say in, in Mariner's flashback, I really enjoyed seeing those gray-shouldered uniforms. For yeah. Some. I don't know why. I really like them. And it, was, and it was just fun to see those. But then that raises the question, you know, how long ago was that flashback? And I guess your uh, estimate would be six to seven years before the events of Lower Decks? Well, the, the reference to data and lore, uh, that, that's oh, a two-part right. season finale, season premiere of, I think it was the end of season six of Next Generation, the two-part episode called Descent. So that would have been six or, I mean, and with maybe a few weeks in between, maybe six, six years before Lower Decks, based on what they've told us about when Lower Decks is set. Well, I'm, I'm, that's good because, I mean, in order for, uh, you know, Mariner to have all of this knowledge and experience, she has to be older than all the other ensigns she's working with on the Cerritos. So I, I like that consistency there. In the flashback, she is an ensign. Uh, I didn't notice that. Of course, of course well... <laughs> Again, later later viewings, you, right. you check that kind of thing. But she has the one pip, so she's she's uh, an ensign, and maybe that wasn't even the first time she got demoted. Who knows? Maybe Cerritos is not the first time she got uh, uh, demoted. I, I also kind of like the reference to for those guys. It seems like a like it's a new thing every week for those guys, which again is a reference to episodic television. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. I, I thought of it in the context of, of a, a, a point I want to make later about how exhausting it must be to serve on a ship like Enterprise, right? With something new and freaky happening every single week, it, it's got to be exhausting. Mariner, as you noticed, had a, a too-good-to-be-true boyfriend in this flashback who turned out to be a shape-changer, and this obviously had a, a significant left a significant impression on Mariner, which played a role in her thinking. Yeah, she'd, she'd seen before what she suspected this time. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I, as I rewatched it, I looked, you know, the, the, um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, the, the parasite is basically in Boimler's hair at the back of his head. And on rewatching, I looked at earlier scenes to see if there was any hint that anything might be there, you know, artistically just a line or two or something like that. And I didn't see any, any of that. But I did wonder if, if the parasite's been attached to Boimler for a month, why did it drop a husk now? I mean, that was one of the plot points, but, you know, it was. Who, who, know who knows? What did you think of Boimler's coolest clothes in history all merged together? It's absurd. I think uh, Brinson was impressed, though. Could, you remember she be. said something about, you know, you come in here looking so sharp and then you do all this weird stuff. You know, I think that he made a, there was a brief reference to the dude dog, 
but and the music that accompanied it was you know electric guitars so you know that kind of fit the the cool guy i didn't take time to try to figure out who the famous cool people would be that had been merged together i when i first I saw when i first saw the jacket which would have been on on boimler's left side I, I don't think this is what it really was. My first thought was the Fonz, but I don't really think it was the same jacket the Fonz wore. But uh, someone is going to go through and and try to isolate every little element and things there and see see what's uh, what's what's cool. Uh, it was that someone could be us. Yeah, and of course, some of them may not be people we really know. You know, hard hard telling. Free jumping among the ships that uh, Mariner did. That's a bit like Kirk and Khan in Star Trek Into Darkness. And Michael Burnham did that more than once, I think, in different episodes of Discovery, just in a suit and being out there kind of flying around in space that uh, draw, drew on things we'd seen before. There, there, were, there were subtle things. When, when Mariner and, 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 and Barmra are, are fighting, they're fighting during a red alert, and the shade of the screen just had a little bit of a red tinge to it. And also in a couple of scenes there, there was just a little trace of blood at the corners of, of their mouths, both of them. And, you know, we've talked before about the level of detail they go into with this animation. It's not basic animation. It is really, really quite nuanced. And those, those two things uh, impressed me. They're very subtle. You might not notice, but, uh, but they took the time to do it. Captain Freeman, you know, talked about imploding the moon, and you talked about that in your summary. Imploding is like the opposite of exploding. It means it would collapse inwards. But we see that what really happened is it turned into a ring around the planet. So I don't know where imploding came from. Boimler used the word demolish. Yeah. Once, or maybe twice, yeah. but the word they used most of all was imploding. And, and frankly, I don't get it either. I mean, it seems to me if the material out of which the moon was made were not moved up into a higher orbit, it would have uh, fallen into the planet anyway. So maybe this is uh, one of those things that we shouldn't uh, worry <laughs> about too much. Well, it is, it is science fiction, but we, in science fiction, we like the science to make, to make some sure. sense. Uh, Mariner is talking about Boimler, and he says, he's a dork for sure, but he's my dork. That reminds me of a scene in Firefly in, I don't remember the name of the episode, but uh, uh, the patron says to Mal, that girl is a witch. And Mal says, yeah, but she's our witch. And, but you notice Mariner used first person. She didn't say he's our dork. He said he's my dork. That's right. Uh, I think, you know, I think, well, well, and we'll talk a little bit more, I think, about what, what is the nature of their relationship and, and where might it be going? Before I watched the episode, I expected that Brinson would end up not being what she seemed. Uh, I think that's what we were being set up for. Maybe because Mariner thought there was something wrong with her, and she's usually right. She has been so far. But of course, as we know, Brinson turns out to be fully human. She's just a fabulous human being. And this reminded me of certain uh, original series episodes, like The Devil in the Dark or The Corbomite Maneuver, where what at first seems to be a horrible monster turns out to be something completely different and benign. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a very Star Trek-like plot twist. And, and often Gene Roddenberry's stories, the ones that he was directly involved in, would do that. You'd be set mm. up going in one direction, and there'd be some just complete revelation that, 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 that turns, turns it on end. 
So, and yeah. all we end up hit with here, and in, out, after all of this, we have just two people protecting someone they care about, Boimler, and just this little parasite that only wants to reproduce. And that's it. So, uh, and I, I enjoyed the twist. It reminded me of the original series. So let's move on and talk a little bit about the messages and the morals and, and the meanings here. And if there are philosophical underpinnings and really what, what, uh, what the takeaway for the audience is, is supposed to be. A thing I noticed, it really stood out for me that in, in the scene, again, in their office or shop, whatever it is, uh, where the murder board is, when Mariner is, is raging just about, about Barb and, and what she might be, Boimler tells her that she needs to accept people for who they are. And that was Mariner's message in last week's episode. That was the big takeaway of last week's episode. Of course, they turned it into a joke, and, and Boimler then wants to pretend to be someone he's not. Right. But, I mean, they, that was not an accident that they, that they alluded to last week's major message, I think. Yeah, there's some continuity there. I wanted to talk about that Mextusian uh, conspiracy theory a bit. The Mextusian there says that it's that this threat of an unstable moon is is a government plot to control people. That has to be uh, a comment. Well, I'm not exactly sure when this episode was produced, but it sure seems like a commentary on conspiracy theories in our culture. Uh, for example, we have some people now who believe that COVID-19 is a hoax perpetrated to violate our rights and deprive us of our freedoms completely ignoring the, the, the medical science behind this uh, virus. Um, the Mextusian conspiracy theory, it's obviously absurd and falsified by the science. I and mean, we have faith that the, the folks in the Federation have figured out what's going on here and their prediction is going to be accurate. And Freeman treats it with the contempt that it deserves. And even, even if the script for this episode is kind of before our our current uh, COVID-19 pandemic, it certainly addresses climate change because the same dynamics are going, are going on there and denying of science and, uh, and, uh, and Good all point. that. So, yeah. Another thing, I, I actually know somebody who cannot stand this series. I'm not going to name this person, but if, if you're wondering whether this is really Star Trek, I think that you should notice that Starfleet is doing the kind of thing, the exact kind of thing we expect them to do ever since the original series. They're there to help civilization solve their serious problems. So if, for me anyway, that, that's staying true to the, to the spirit and uh, canon of Star Trek. Um, yeah, and I, and, and I agree that the, the messages and the things they do, separate from the humor that's injected, feels Star Trek-ish. Yeah, definitely. I also liked how Freeman is treated sympathetically in this episode. She's talking with that wealthy Mextusian she says, we're Starfleet. Figuring out impossible problems is what we do. So let's just keep calm and try to think of a solution. And she comes up with a plan that satisfies almost everyone except for this wealthy Mixtusian. And, and we sympathize with her, at least I did, when she finally loses her temper. She's been very controlled uh, so far. And it's very admirable how much control she's shown, but it does humanize her. And, and she has not always been portrayed that favorably in previous episodes. She's Very been true. kind of a jerk, and she's been selfish. And so, yeah, this is a, this is a nice perspective on her. Yeah. And, and for me, I've just wondered at times, I'm sure you have too also, Michael, when you're watching older episodes of Star Trek, how the captains manage to keep it together when they're faced with 
with, with these problems just that just appear to be impossible. You know, within the continuity of Star Trek, you know, they, they go to the academy, they have command training, they're somewhere between ensign and lieutenant commander for at least a decade, if not more. And so they, they do take their steps through the process of moving into these leadership and, and command roles. It's kind of like a physician today, a physician. After high school, you're in four years of undergraduate degree and then medical school and then internship and then residency. And so you've been studying medicine for a decade or more before you might have a private practice of your own. You so, know, to bolster that point, I, I seem to remember reading somewhere uh, that uh, Captain Kirk was probably in his mid-30s before he finally became a captain of the Enterprise, and that was young for a captain. Um, yeah, he, he was in his early 30s when he became captain. One of the, maybe it's third season, one of the episodes he actually says, I think he says he's 34 or something like that. Oh, okay. So, okay. but, but and, and, and he was promoted as being the youngest captain ever. Oh, okay. Um, for a just period to bolster your point, they just won't let anybody be captain. Well, that's the Kelvin timeline. I guess things are a little different there. But anyway, I, I think also this episode was a commentary maybe on the excessive influence wealthy people have on public policy. I mean, this wealthy mixtusion would put the entire planet at risk just to save his own personal moon. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's absurd. And that brings us to uh, a common Star Trek moral axiom, I think. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And it's absurd for this guy to be putting his own personal planet ahead of that entire system. And I, and I liked how Freeman put him in his place. That's exactly where he belongs. What did you think of the sexual innuendo and the profanity? And it was cartoon, but it was a nude scene in the cartoon. What did you think? I was, was going to ask you that. Um, it personally didn't bother me. I thought Jet's profanity sort of called attention to itself. And that made me think that it was gratuitous. We've heard reports that Lower Decks is going to be on Nickelodeon next year. I don't see yeah. how they're going to do that unless they sanitize this thing or put it on after midnight. I'm not sure what their plan is, but as yeah. it is, you can't put that on Nickelodeon, can you? I don't think, think so. so. I wouldn't I think so. Yeah, but they may have different versions. So I think it is, it is notable that in this episode, Meritor makes a big mistake. And we haven't very often seen her making mistakes, even if other, other people think she is. Uh, she usually relies on, on her past experience but that past experience led her astray this time. Plus, it seems like she's jealous, either because she, without really admitting it, or maybe even to herself, likes Boimler, or maybe because the parasite was affecting her also. I don't know. I mean, she said Boimler is, uh, is a catch, and, you know, what's she, really, what she really thinking there? Yeah, I, I guess maybe there's a narrative gap here, and it's, and it's not completely determined what's going on. When, you know, when I was watching this, it just seemed to me that Mariner and Boimler, they're, they're like brother and sister. Uh, Boimler is like Mariner's little brother, and she's looking out for him. And um, I think she tells him that he's a catch because at that point, uh, Brinson had just broken up with him, and, he, and she's trying to bolster his self-confidence. At least that's the way I read the situation. Or is she feeling some kind of attraction for, for him? I mean, my wife very specifically said, Mariner's jealous of the attention that, mm. that Brad was paying to Barb and that mm. Barb was playing to, to Brad. I mean, he's definitely 
a stabilizing influence in her life. And, and without him around, she tends to be kind of erratic. Yeah, she often makes good judgments and, you know, but she's kind of off the wall sometimes. And I think that at the end, influence. I mean, at the end of that, was it the last episode or which episode was it where they, um, she's having her conflict with Ransom about who's going to challenge the warrior on the crystal planet. Yeah. And at the end of that episode, I mean, Mariner is completely out of control. I, I'm very surprised that she's still on the ship, frankly. So, I mean, she does need a stabilizing influence. Yeah. So maybe, crazy. maybe there is, even though they're not ready to admit it, maybe there is a little bit of opposites attract going on here. Well, I will have to wait and see, I think. I, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to buy it, but um, we'll, we'll see, I guess. Time will tell. We talked a minute ago about, about climate change as, as being a metaphor story here. And, and one thing I noticed with that respect, I should have brought it up earlier maybe, and it's kind of quick and easy to miss, but their solutions to the problem of the moon as a metaphor to, to the problem of climate change is technology. The moon was breaking up and it was going to mess with the tides needed for crops catastrophic stuff there and they're going to use gravity systems to compensate for the tides for farmers and by the way the farmers they, they look to me like they were like aquatic so maybe this was an ocean life tide crop type thing they're going to relocate tons of moon dust for people to worship because some of the moons were objects of worship the people living on that moon were going to be moved to to another moon and, you know, when we talk about solutions to climate change today, many of them are technology that needs to change. You know, we need to replace fossil fuels with clean energy, other kinds of technology that might help remove or reduce the carbon dioxide in the air. So the, the solutions that are advocated now for climate change are basically grounded in, in, in technology, whereas technology is one of the reasons we we got to where we are uh, because of the carbon emitted into the atmosphere and all of that. But, but it, it, was, it was brief and hard to notice in this episode, but, but their Starfleet is using technology to solve what is in effect a climate change uh, uh, problem in this, in this episode. Yeah, a lot of this stuff goes by very quickly, as, as you've noted, and I, and I just didn't really think about all of this. I was wondering, though, what Docent is doing in this episode, and, and I've come to the conclusion that he's more than just a, a plot device. At first I was thinking, he reminds me a little bit of Reginald Barkley, but I, I don't think the similarities are, are sufficient for me to, to claim that he's sort of a Reginald Barkley. But, you know, he says the, the Vancouver is too stressful and epic. And I was just thinking, well, doesn't that describe every prominent vessel in the Star Trek canon? I mean, Docent wouldn't last a week on the Enterprise or Voyager <laughs> or DS9 or Discovery. I mean, he would completely lose his mind if he was on any of those vessels. And I, I, I think the same is true of all of us. Now, you pointed out earlier, which I hadn't thought of before, that, you know, all these people are trained to serve and to go on these missions. But still, it just seems like, you know, it would be exhausting to serve on one of these vessels. And I, I have wondered before, how do they stay sane? you know, going through this sort of thing week, week in and week out. And maybe the writers are making a point here about the sort of thing that happens in these series. I don't know. You know, I, in Next Generation, they were probably doing, what, 26, 27 episodes, which means that something big happened every couple of weeks out of a 52-week year. 
But I mean, that's dramatic television and that's storytelling. You, you can't really have an episode in which nothing happens. True. Although they, they did, I mean, like Data's Day and there were episodes that were, there was not a major crisis, but, but still to make the episode work for the audience, you need, you need some kind of antagonism or some kind of threat conflict. To, be, to be overcome conflict. Yeah. Yep. Whether the conflict is an external thing that's being imposed on us or, or sometimes the conflict is more social between people and that, and that kind of thing can be, can be a good story uh, also. You know, Lower Decks is really the first Star Trek series in years to be episodic in, in nature. And I think the last real season of Star Trek that was episodic in nature was, was season two of Enterprise because season three got into the whole Zindi story arc and all that. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if that's going to continue here. Now, I think the episodic nature in uh, more or less a half-hour animated series probably works better than trying to have continued stories. But I'm wondering if that's really what they're going to do here. We're halfway through the season. There are five more episodes. And I'm wondering if the last couple of episodes or last three episodes might have some kind of continued story so that there is some kind of bigger finale rather than just, well, that's the last episode. Maybe we'll be back next year. I think that, that the, the upcoming a series, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, upon the Enterprise under Captain Pike, I know a lot of fans are hoping that will have a bit more of an episodic feel to it than we've seen recently with the big season-long crises. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what they decide to do with this, with this series. I, I have to. I confess, I am one of those fans. I think it would be fun to have an episodic uh, show about Pike. And again, as I said early on, the episodes are moving so fast. If if there's a downside, I don't. I don't mind mostly. I don't mind the humor. I don't mind just the animated nature of the stories. But they move so fast. I really. I I literally wish they would run these at about eighty percent speed because the, the, the voices would not, I have audio editing software, I've done some experiments, the voices would not seem slow at 80%. Really? Uh, but it would, it would work, it would work better. Wow. So I wish they do that. They're probably not going to because they probably think animation has to be very, very fast paced in that. But that's, that's, a, that's a creative decision that I, I wish they'd either decide to have longer episodes and slow it down a bit or Sometimes maybe they have too many subplots. I don't know. <laughs> well, didn't we count in that one episode? I think there were three or four subplots. Yeah, like yeah. Typically, well, they've at least two. They've more than once, I think, had three, and the one they had four, the way I counted it, at least. Hmm. So I think we're about out of time here. Any final thoughts? I have none, except I'm looking forward to next, next episode. We have talked about a lot of things here in today's episode, and I want to thank people for joining us this week. The Star Trek Academy podcast responds to every new Star Trek episode of every season. We're talking about Lower Decks now. In a few weeks, the third season of Discovery starts, and we'll be looking at Discovery episodes, and then we'll see what comes next after that in terms of Star Trek. You can find new episodes at our website, thestartrekacademy.blogspot.com. And that site also has links to Facebook and Twitter and to, to links that you can use for your podcatching software. All right. So that does it. Another episode in the books. Go ahead and join us next week 
for the next episode of the Star Trek Academy podcast. And we'll see you then.